today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We mentioned now that the provincial election is in our rearview mirror. Uh, we focus on the municipal elections, which are coming up October 22nd of this year. And uh, it promises to be a very uh, interesting election here in the city of Hamilton because of a number of key issues. Uh, the, the first one, of course, being LRT, but there are a number of different things that are coming along. And uh, there is a challenge for the mayor's spot. Uh, we told you about this some months ago, that uh, a well-known uh, chartered accountant and uh, political organizer, Vito Scro, uh was musing about the idea of running for the top job here in the city of Hamilton. Uh, yesterday, he has uh, quasi-made it official. Uh, he hasn't registered yet, but we invited him in to talk about this. Vito Scro, uh partner at CBM Chartered Accountants, and soon-to-be candidate for mayor, right? You haven't registered? I have not registered yet, no. Uh, 71 Main Street West, if you're... Uh, thank you for that. I was, I was a little confused where exactly it was, but <laughs> okay. thank you for that. All right. When when we talked again, uh, just a, a couple of times over the last couple of months, you said you're, you're seriously considering this, you're thinking about this, you wanted to talk to people. Uh, you told me yesterday that you've made the decision and you're going to go. What pushed you over the line? Well, I had to decide uh, on some personal and business issues, which... Uh, we're a little iffy and I'll be right honest with you. I'm getting out of uh, the practice. Um, I will be leaving there very shortly, no matter what I was going to do. I had to make sure that was going properly. You were there a long time. Uh, well, I've been doing this for 30 years uh, and 30 years is enough. So I, this is the perfect opportunity for me to do something. So there's like no this. safety net for you. This is it. This is it. So if, the, if this doesn't happen, if the people decide another way, then I'll find something else to do. But uh, it, I'm on the other side now. Usually I was trying to convince people to run in. Bill, you know what that's like. Yes, I do. And in the 20 years you've known me, have you ever heard me muse about running for anything? Never. Uh, and there were one main issue and the way it was handled that really just pushed me over the edge. And, and I couldn't take the way it was set up and how it was done. And that's LRT. And uh, that was probably the deciding factor. All right. Well, we're going to get into some of these issues. But, I mean, it's... it's now, I've maintained that this is going to be the wedge issue in this campaign. I mean, I, I know that those who support LRT, and, and I support the concept of LRT, uh, say this is a quote-unquote done deal. You're not buying that. Well, I was, uh, up until recently, on the board of Infrastructure Ontario. Yeah. And Infrastructure Ontario does the procurement for not just Hamilton LRT, for all of the LRTs. I, it's nowhere near a done deal. My last board meeting before I resigned had to do with the RFP, uh, which for Hamilton. It's going to be into February-ish, March of next year. Things got to happen after that once they pick a consortium. A shovel might not be in the ground till the end of 19 or possibly 2020. They say five years. Waterloo is about two years behind. There's some issues with Bombardier, which again, Toronto, if you read the Toronto Star today, is having some issues with air cars that they've got to send back. Yeah. Um, it's a long way off. Then there's arguments that there's no money. Uh, I don't know what exactly the mayor was trying to say, that there's no money for buses. It's over 40 years. It's the same money for LRT that will be available for anything else the city decides to do. Under the method, and I, I don't want to get into the mechanics of it, under the method that I.O. uses, the money has to be paid, 85% of it, to the consortium as it's being built. The remaining 15% is like a holdback over 30 years. It's not taken into accounting expenses over 40 years, but the money will have to be borrowed same way. So the money for LRT would be the same money for anything else we decide to do. So there's that issue. Then there's another issue with we've spent $80 million. Well, I checked with Metrolinx and anybody can call Metrolinx's communications and ask for a breakdown. 
they started grouping uh, salaries from Metrolix employees from 2007 into that total. They've grouped uh, uh, studies from 2010, 2011, and so forth into this number, way before Hamilton even decided to have an LRT. Part of that amount is for land they bought. That land is still going to be there. They can do whatever they want. And I believe Councillor Jackson asked in council some of the studies, the current ones they used in that number, can it be used for further transit uh, that is an LRT? And, and the answer was yes. So this is nowhere near a done deal. We are going to have the right to decide whatever we choose to do with that money in transit. So if, if, if Vito Scro becomes Mayor Vito Scro after October 22nd, And this is the burning issue for you. And there are some other ones, and I know we're going to try to get to as many as we can to talk about this uh, before you register. Uh, What does Mayor Scrow do on his first day in office? Do you call Doug Ford and say, this is off? Do you go to council? I mean, because the the, the reality here, as you well know, Mm -hmm. is no matter what the mayor, whether it's going to be Fred Eisenberg or Vito Scrow or anybody else, you're only one vote. Right. And you don't have, as mayor, you don't have the power to arbitrarily say it's off. Well... It'll be the opportunity for the citizens of Hamilton uh, on October 22nd to decide what they want to do. You're right. The mayor is one vote and I can't or Fred or anybody can't just wave a wand and say this is the way it's going to be. Although in the past, that's the way it's been done with a bunch of issues. The people will decide and I will stand by it once they're given all the facts. And if they decide that's what they want to do, I'll have no problem with that. Is this, is this election then a referendum on LRT as far as you're concerned? Uh, well, it's not the only issue. I have a lot of other things I'd like to discuss, but it'll probably be the main one, But yes. is it going to be the battle box issues? That's what's going to drive people. Because obviously Fred Eisenberger is very much in line with LRT. He's been a, an advocate of this. Uh, you obviously don't think it's the best idea. No, so I don't. it's it's either or. I mean, now I, I'm not suggesting it's the only element that's going to decide which way people are going to vote, but clearly you've given people a choice here. And, and I'll be fine with whatever you decide. And yes, I think this will be the big issue. All right. Well, four years ago, when it was also a big issue, uh, the candidate who is espousing the same sorts of things you are, i.e., let's use the money for buses, was Brad Clark. And he, uh, he didn't do well. Well, uh, I don't think people were given all of the information on where we were. Um, I, th- I believe once they do, I think they will come to m- my line of thinking is. But if they don't, that's fine, too. We have the opportunity. This isn't once in a lifetime. This is once in five lifetimes. We can take this money and put it into a complete system for the whole city from 50 Road all the way to Waterdown, north-south. Um, we can use a rapid component with the bus systems. We can use inf- money for infrastructure along those lines. We have a massive deficit for infrastructure in this city, as you know, Bill. And if this can take a big chunk out of that, I don't see why we're not going down this route. The technology, in my opinion, is old. Uh, as I said in the paper yesterday, it's uh, technology that our grandparents worked on. We need technology that our grandchildren are going to work on. I want to take some of this money and create a reserve fund to study transit. Autonomous vehicles are coming. Toronto, if you read the Toronto Star today, they're already testing autonomous buses uh, on their routes in, in the next few weeks or so. It's coming. We've got to be ready for that. Um, This reserve study will work with the Innovation Center, with the HSR, and it'll show things of how do we build roads for the future for transit? What communication lines do we need? A whole uh, array uh, of ideas that we can get ahead of before they're coming, and they're not going to be that far down the road. We go LRT for a small part of the city, which I don't think will produce the development, uh, uh, worry about congestion and so forth, is not the answer in my opinion. 
I've looked at other cities. Los Angeles is uh, using microbusing, microtransit, where basically it's like an app. You you hit an app button and a bus, which is really a van, will come to your corner to pick you up. They're already testing that. Seattle, which has part of their system on an LRT line, is now going to buses and it's being used uh, a lot in Seattle. And Seattle's a very it's a great transit city. So you can find any study that says this is good or that is good and so forth. We got to find something that's better for Hamilton. Eric, you're a numbers guy. I mean, that's been your career. That's what you're, right. you're good at. Right. Uh, even when you worked for Infrastructure Ontario, you were on the audit committee. You chaired the audit committee. Uh, you you uh, with the Port Authority, same sort of thing. You're always looking at numbers. Mm-hmm. All right. Are you going to take that 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 perspective uh, if you would become successful after this election? I mean, as mayor, are, are you concerned about the finances? Are you concerned about the reporting mechanisms? Because that's that's the bread and butter. That's the infrastructure. Well, it, it's never exciting, and I can see people's gl- eyes glaze over. Sometimes mine do. I don't understand how a city of this size, uh, with over you know expenditures in the billions of dollars, doesn't have an auditor general. Uh, like the province does, like the federal government does. It would be appointed by the province, not hired by the city, with complete power over finances, uh, uh, con- uh, programs. They don't just look at numbers. They look at, is a program working? Is it being wasteful? Is it being successful? Should we do more of it? This brings uh, more sunshine to everything. You, 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 you're more um, transparent. And that's what we're looking for, transparency. There is cost savings involved, but it gives a sense that your money is being spent properly. There's, and, there's an audit committee already. Well, every every entity should have an internal audit committee, but they report to council. Their job is to create these practices. The auditor general uh, takes a look and sees, are they being followed? And you'd be surprised at the provincial level, the federal level, they're not being followed or they need help or it's not the right process. It's an outside set of eyes. And it's vital that a city this size... Uh, like I said, I can't believe other cities are not being imposed or forced to by the province. This should be a- across the province. All right, but listen, I'm, I'm just going to talk about Doug Ford in a couple of minutes here about some of the things that he's promised and he, he's apparently trying to follow through on now. But there's a cost involved in this. So mm-hmm. it sounds wonderful that you want more transparency and you want to develop this, this auditor general. But at what cost? Yeah, but Bill, uh, it's, it, what cost is there when you don't do it? Uh, I, I can't tell you that you're going to save X millions of dollars. And anyone who says I can save this much, that's not that's a little bit disingenuous. Is there waste? Every entity has waste. Uh, profit businesses, for-profit, non-for-profit, so forth. What we got to get away from, I was on the board of HECFI for four months, a whole glorious four months. And the waste I saw at, at that agency, and no one was looking at it. They had a management team, and it wasn't a very big operation, of 43 people. Now, everyone used to blame the people below, the ticket takers, the, the, the custodial staff, and it's always that group that's blamed for the cost. It, it was up above. They had about 23 people they didn't need. At an average of seventy dollars to $100,000 per person, you're looking at $2 million a year. Now, I'm not saying anything about staffing. It's just, how did that not come to light? You know, we have issues with other agencies, Waterfront Trust, uh, Tourism, so forth. What would you do with the Waterfront Trust? Well, again, with an Auditor General's role, any problems would come to light. Now, is it is it valuable? I don't know. But an Auditor General role would look at that every year. And if there is a problem with it, council would know right away. They failed an audit. Everything should have stopped right there on the spot. And I don't want to go into the water. Waterfront Trust has been beaten to death. But my point is that would come to light right away, not 10 years later. 
And there are other departments that should be looked at. I would like to take a look at the whole city, and I would start at, at, the, at the union level. Go to them and say, guys, what's working, what's not working? This is what I found in my experience, is where you find the truth at the front line, the workers on the front line. And there, from there, you move up. Uh, we are going into this election with new ward boundaries. I mean, some of them are just tweaked a little bit. Others, some major differences. Uh, it was like trying to herd cats, trying to get right. cats. Well, they actually, you know, he had to actually push cancel into this. Right. Uh, nobody seems to be happy about it. But you're suggesting that uh, one of the things you'd like to pursue if you're successful is changing the boundaries again. Well, what I and it's not going to be for this election, obviously. Of course it's, not. it's a discussion I want to have and get some serious input uh, from everyone across the city. We've got to take the decision making on what the boundaries look like away from council. Okay, there's a conflict there, obviously. Uh, I liked using the federal uh, boundaries because they're looked at every year, uh, every ten years. Sorry, independently by the Elections Canada group. They're not political in any way, shape, or form. They look at uh, population patterns, centers of interest, and so forth. And I think that's the route to go. You can have one per, you know, bigger ward, two, three. It's up to the people. Um, I wanted them elected at large, so someone who, you know, is from a certain area will not have to think about the whole ward and not just that area. We got to start thinking on a uh, on a city basis. The independent uh, or the individual neighborhoods are very important to people, and they should be. But we've got to start thinking more citywide also. There's some major things going to be happening in Hamilton, and they're all going to be good. We've got to start thinking for the better of the whole city. All right. I just got about a minute or so left here. You've been involved in campaigns for years and years and years. Uh, you know the machinations. You know the realities. And you know the challenges. And and obviously one of the biggest challenges that you're going to face is is name recognition. I right. mean, the incumbents in, in municipal elections, not just in Hamilton, but anywhere, have about a 97% re-election. So, I mean, that's one challenge. Secondly is name recognition. Mm-hmm. I mean, not a whole lot of people in the city know Vito's Grove. Right. How do you combat that? Well, campaigning. Uh, organizing. It's going to take money. I mean, it's it's a kind of a dirty word, but it's going to take money and a team and the right messaging. And, and we're going to give it a shot. I mean, I've only met the mayor a few times and he's been a perfect gentleman to me. Very nice man. Uh, and everyone knows him. I think I have some different ideas and a different direction of where I want the city to go. I want to get it out there. And if the message can get out there, the people will decide. I will be happy with whatever the people decide. Vito Scro, uh, apparently leaving here, our studios at Main and Longwood, in just a couple of minutes to go down to City Hall to become official. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk again. Uh, we're planning on doing uh, candidates' debates, as we always do during municipal elections, so uh, we look forward to that. But uh, thanks so much for being Thank here you, today. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Premier Doug Ford is uh, not wasting any time in starting to implement some of the things he talked about during the campaign uh, of course, one of those being the cap-and-trade program, or the killing the carbon tax, as he called it, which is not really what cap-and-trade is, but uh, maybe that's a topic for another day about proper uh, use of uh, what phrase is actually going on, because they are two separate programs. However, whatever we had in Ontario, which was cap-and-trade, he says is going to be it. And and this is, it's not a debatable point. I, I know I talked about this on my commentary at uh, 810 this morning. And I got a lot of reactions saying, well, it's, you got to keep the program. It, it's, uh, you know, and, and then went on with a number of lists. And because and, I know that people are very, very adamant about this. You're either very much in favor of, of cap and trade or you're very much against it. And uh, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of middle ground. But it's really a moot point at this stage because the government that's going to be in power for the next four years has said, no, they're not going to do it. But there's a cost to everything that happens or doesn't happen when it comes to government. 
And and that's where things are a little fuzzy because I'm reading all kinds of reports here about the cost of, of killing the cap-and-trade program here in Ontario. Uh, and I mean the financial cost, not the environmental cost. That's a whole different discussion, I suppose. And to try to get a handle on exactly what's going on and how this is going to impact the province, I want to bring uh, Steve Applin back into the program. He is the publisher of Emission Track, which monitors CO2 carbon dioxide emissions from energy use. Uh, always a pleasure, Steve. Thanks so much for the time today. Nice to be here, Bill. Well, we talked about this as a, what, something that might happen. It's already starting to happen, and the province has now said that they're going to deconstruct this whole thing. Uh, and, and again, as I say, there's the environmental element to this, and there's certainly uh, the the financial end of this. I, I want to touch briefly on the environmental aspect of it, though, because I know that in a lot of the tracking uh, that you do, uh, you get a pretty good idea and a pretty good handle on how effective cap-and-trade or carbon emission programs, carbon taxing, whatever it is, have been. Are, are they efficient? And I'm talking but from an environmental standpoint. You mean uh, in reducing CO2? Yeah. Well, uh, not in my study. The the uh, the cap and trade programs that were well, the one that we're talking about, the Western Climate Initiative that that uh, was California and Quebec. Yeah, uh, it, I don't see that it is uh, that it has done much to uh, reduce CO two in the state of California. And this is where we're going to be buying permits from after you know, in, to make our target in 2020. Or under the Liberals, we were supposed to be doing this. Yeah. Uh, California is phasing out uh, uh, two of its largest nuclear plants. It's 40 percent of its in-state CO2-free generating capacity. I don't see how they're going to have permits left over for us to buy, uh, let alone let alone uh, 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 not replace that with fossil fuels. So I don't, uh, I don't see that that uh, particular program has been all that effective in terms of the carbon tax. Um, there's a lot of uh, press about the BC carbon tax. I don't see that that has been all that effective either. So I, I just look at the case for these uh, carbon tax and cap and trade initiatives around the world that have been held up as examples of, that we need to follow. I don't see the, that they have been effective at all. As a matter of fact, they've been counterproductive. So th- that's the efficacy of, of the of the program from the environmental standpoint, and and uh, you're not alone in in, in your uh, your criticism and your critique about this and your assessment of it, Steve. Because I've heard this from many other sources, uh, but it is it is it's a revenue source for governments, and and that's the cold hard reality uh, that uh, that they do generate revenue. Now they the government, the, this being the former government now, always maintained that look at the money that we generate from this, we're going to pick back into environmental initiatives, you know, like retrofitting houses, et cetera, et cetera, things of this nature. Uh, and and that's where the financial cost comes into this. And I'm hearing all sorts of stories now about well, you just talked about, for instance, the carbon credits uh, and the, and the purchases that uh, the companies that have already bought those uh, with the anticipation that this program was not going to be discontinued, uh, we're told we could be on the hook for about three billion dollars to try to refund those programs. Is 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 that a legitimate argument? And is that something that's a, a possibility at this stage? Well, there's certainly something to be done with the money that the uh, Ontario companies that participated in that program or that were required to participate in that program uh, uh, already committed to uh, car- uh, uh, carbon permits. So there is that. I mean, that's uh, not exactly the elephant in the room because we're talking about it, but it, that is certainly a major issue, and, that's, uh, and, and that pile of money is something that, that our government is going to have to do something with. So the question is whether they just refund it out of the tax base, or whether they that whether they uh, deploy it in some other means, in in some other way, uh, what the what the current Ontario government has said it's not going to do is continue what the previous government did, which is to put this into uh, a, a slew of initiatives 
that the previous government really liked. So home retrofits, as you mentioned, and other, you know, green energy, sustainable energy programs. The current government doesn't buy into that. That's an ideology, and it's, a, it's, it's their right to not buy into it, in my opinion, because I think that's quite, uh, they're, they're, the, the uh, benefits are quite overstated and, 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 and not all that in, in evidence. So I think that the, uh, the big question is, how is the government going to compensate the companies that put the, that bought the carbon permits, the, the, the $2.9 billion that we're talking about? Uh, and and that's obviously a, a, a great importance to us because three billion dollars is still a pretty big price tag. Yes. Uh, and, and again, I know some people have tried to draw the analogy between this and the gas plant scandal during the McGinty government uh, about costs and of trying to get out of programs or canceling contracts and things of this nature. Uh, I don't think that I, I'm not so sure that's a fair comparison just based on the numbers that we're talking about here. But it is the same idea that you know when you cancel something, there will have to be ramifications to it. Uh, the other element of, of the financial end of this that we need to talk about is uh, is the federal government's involvement in this. I mean, because you know we're going to start butting heads with the federal government out here in Ontario yep. because obviously they're saying, well, if you're not going to do cap and trade, then you're going to have to be part of the carbon pricing and the carbon emissions that they're trying to implement, uh, not unlike uh, what's going on in British Columbia right now. Uh, there's a legal aspect to this, but in the meantime, we're starting to hear already from Ottawa that they're saying, well, you know what, those uh, subsidies, that money, the transfer payments we send to Ontario, I don't think we're going to do that anymore if you guys aren't going to play ball with us. And uh, that, I'm told, could be upwards of $140 million annually. Uh, that's there's that's a good question about what are going to be the ramifications uh, between the you know federal, provincial ramifications of this. Uh, the political advantage, I think, belongs to the Ontario Premier. He just won a resounding mandate, and he's just at the very, very beginning of his of a four-year mandate. The federal government has got a year and a half before a, a federal election. Uh, the carbon tax uh, that the federal government has, hang, has hung its case for how we're going to meet uh, carbon targets, uh, that's as, as I've said before. It's it's a very very weak case in my opinion. It's not going to it's not going to uh, produce the reductions on the scale that we need. You know we've got this 2030 target bill uh, uh, coming up. It's 12 short years away. Mm-hmm. There is absolutely no way that outside of a massive uh, industrialization program that that we are going to meet this carbon target. We're certainly not going to make it with this carbon tax, which. The federal government appears to have hung all its all its uh, uh, hopes on. So the 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 federal government knows this. They they know the prospect of meeting the 2030 target. And are they going to declare war a, a carbon tax war on Ontario uh, with a election coming up in a year and a half when that ideology that's behind the carbon tax was just repudiated uh, in the Ontario election? It's an interesting question. Well, especially, yeah, because it wouldn't just be on Ontario. When you start getting into the, the realm of the federal election in 2019, I mean, Saskatchewan obviously is, is on side with, with going to court about this. Uh, we're not sure. Manitoba might be. Uh, we're hearing a lot of rumblings there that they're not crazy about what the the government of Manitoba is trying to do right now. And if they can find a note, they may try to do that. It, it could well be uh, a ballot box issue in the federal election. And, and you're right. You have to wonder about the, the political intelligence of actually trying to say, well, we're going to butt heads with you guys no matter what. Uh, you're, yeah. you're supposed to win the hearts and minds of voters, not really tick them off, and that there's, there's that element. But I'm, I'm concerned about the court case, when, and it seems as if we may end up doing that. And uh, Saskatchewan and, and Ontario, to, for starters anyway, though, uh, Steve, to try to sue the government. Because uh, the premise that I read is that they're basically saying the government doesn't have, the federal government doesn't have the authority 
uh, to impose this tax. Well, they, I know I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but I think any federal government has the right to tax, do they not? I, I think you're probably right, it's, but it's going to be a political decision. You, you mentioned uh, Saskatchewan, possibly Manitoba, joining Ontario. Uh, don't forget that there's going to be an Alberta election, and the government in Alberta could well change. And if it does, it's going to change towards it. You know, there, could, there is a chance that it could change, that the Alberta government could change to a government that is hostile to the carbon tax, just like Ontario is. Sure. If Jason Kenney becomes the premier yeah. in Alberta, you know darn well what he's going to do, because he's already stated it. He's already stated it. He's 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 stated it as as clearly as Doug Ford stated it. So I have no doubt that if he win, if he is to win the the upcoming Alberta election, that he's going to swing the same way that Doug Ford does on the carbon tax. So if that's the case, how you know what kind of uh, what kind of federation are we going to be in when the federal government is at war with you know its its major provinces over something like this? There's there's just a a, a ton of problems. That, that come out of this carbon tax. Like it's for until Doug Ford got elected in Ontario, it was pretty much uh, standard thought, standard thinking that th- this is the way you, you go about it. Well, the electorate now doesn't agree in Canada's biggest province. And there's all sorts of evidence that if, if people were to just look at it, would people would really lose confidence in this idea that a carbon tax is going to be the linchpin of a, of a climate change strategy. So I really think that the federal government is it, it has is is at a wall, and that it's going to have to creatively get over and around without declaring war on some major provinces in, in Canada. It's interesting the way that this has changed the characterization, and I think maybe even the mindset. Because uh, I, I agree with you totally, Steve. A year or so ago. This was almost like, well, yeah, okay, they're doing it. I don't like it, but they're doing it. And and even in, in the, the people's platform that Patrick Brown put together for the PCs before he took, did what he had to do or was told to do, uh, he included the carbon tax in there because he figured this is going to happen. And he talked about how he's going to use the $6 billion for tax cuts, et cetera, et cetera. So it was almost even those th- at that time, the PCs were saying, yeah, it's going to happen. And we always yeah. characterized the opposition to this as really, well, that's just out Saskatchewan and, and Jason Kenney, and they just don't like liberals anyway, so they're going to disagree. So we kind of just, you know, minimize that. Now yeah. this seems to be spreading. That's right. This is, it's amazing how quickly this turned, and it just takes an election. Uh, um, that's right. Patrick Brown was in lockstep with the federal government on the carbon tax. Uh, the the current Ontario government is not, and it's not like the it's not like we didn't know Doug's Ford Doug Ford's attitude towards a carbon tax. You know, on the campaign trail, he made it really plain, and he just won a majority government. So I think that 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 uh, the consensus about you know this this sort of tinkering, what I call tinkering around the edges when it comes to climate policy and hoping for fractions of a percent CO2 reductions at best, uh, that, has, that has just gone out the window with the, with the election, and not just the election of Doug Ford, but we've got an upcoming election, like I said, in Alberta, where, where the, that, there's another government that's got the same attitude that he has. I, I've got to wonder when it comes to government priorities, and, and maybe it's just the cynic in me, that, that if, if the stated goal here is to try to lower CO2 emissions, and that, that's, that's, you know, a laudable goal. We, you know, okay, that has to happen. But you got to wonder if that's, if that's actually being minimized by maybe the government's number one priority, which is to, is to raise money 
Uh, and and yeah, they are dumping some of it into environmental programs like retrofitness and everything, and 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 you know that, that's the justification for. It. But it's really it was a funding formula really for them to dump money into some of these other programs, and they're generating money. I know in BC it's a bit of a different situation because it does come back to some of the residents there in the form of tax breaks. But but it just seems to me it's a revenue generator, and I guess that's the concern we've got now. Uh, if we're not going to do that, governments that were counting on that uh, are now going to say, well, we're going to have to make up that shortfall because that money's not going to be coming anymore. That's right. Well, it's in in Ontario's case with the cap and trade proceeds, and these fluctuate. They fluctuate with yeah. the price of carbon permits, uh, unlike a tax, which is way more certain. Uh, the situation in Ontario was that that money was to have been plowed back to programs. And here's here's the the thing, Bill, that 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 puts the that gives the question to how efficient is carbon pricing or carbon uh, carbon tax or cap and trade if the money was going back into home retrofits and home retrofits are so decisive when it comes to saving energy and money well homeowners didn't need the incentive to do it in the first place if it was so if it was if it's such an obvious case then a homeowner just looks at the his his or her bill and and makes the decision i'm going to retrofit my home so that it's more energy efficient and i don't need that the the subsidy from the government to do it the fact that it needs a subsidy from the government means that it's not that decisive means that it's just just kind of some sort of vote getting uh, a formula in, in which case it's it's not a big deal that we get rid of it well and and that's the the reaction i'm hearing from an awful lot of people uh, they say, hey, look, at, I don't want my tax dollars, which is really what we're talking about here, uh, going to help my neighbor put new windows yeah. in. You know, I'd like, I'd like my neighbor to have new windows. That'd be great. Uh, but, but even that uh, exposes another conundrum. Because now, all of a sudden, if our bills go down, if our heating bills go down, or our electrical bills go down, invariably what they do is they jack the rates up to try to increase the revenue for the for the for the, the agencies for the you know, and and so we the, the consumer seems to lose no matter what they do here. Well, in this current climate, that's that's kind of that's kind of now been embedded, baked into our system. That that's absolutely right. Uh, so so it's just that's the cost and that's the risk of exposing these very vital sectors, energy, and, and especially in Ontario, electricity, exposing them to this kind of uh, turning it into a playground for entrepreneurship. We, we had the situation in Ontario that, that has thankfully just come to an end where, we, where the, the sector was a playground for entrepreneurs with all sorts of ideas, many of which were quite dodgy. But if you slapped a green label onto it, you got funded at the ratepayers' expense. So uh, that kind of thing should be, should be stopped. I mean, the, the idea that, that, that it's, it's a revenue generator that, that, that expands out into other areas that don't have much to do with uh, reducing carbon and, and, and making energy. Uh, I've, I don't uh, disagree with the, with the philosophy that says we should put an end to that. It's interesting that how this has evolved, or maybe devolved, de- de- as, as the case might be. Five years ago, Steve, everybody in North America, especially, was saying, "Look, we got to get on side with this. So, you know, for the sake of the environment, for the sake of, of everything else, we've got to develop some sort of a policy, whether it's cap and trade or, or carbon type pricing, whatever it's going to be." Now, like you say, I'm starting to hear dissenting voices in California, which was a leader back in those days. Uh, and some of these other jurisdictions that were taking the lead on this, and I'm wondering where this program is going to be five years from now. This is a this is the sixty four dollar question. What is the future of climate policy in Western countries? Doug Ford, I think, represents one of the first 
uh, politicians to to campaign overtly against this kind of against this kind of these kinds of measures that have become really popular all across the western world all across the western democratic world uh, so the this uh, we're kind of in a, uh, a very early stages of a counter revolution against that idea uh, here in Ontario it's really going to be interesting to see what happens over the next 4 years and what happens in other jurisdictions that have gotten tired of 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 the, like I like I said the inside the box green ideology approach to climate change. There are solutions. There are ways to, to cut CO2 uh, that have not uh, uh, been, been uh, favored under this ideology. And if this ideology is crumbling, as I think it might be, and it certainly seems to be uh, with the election of Doug Ford, um, it'll be very interesting over the next four years to see what route the world takes to actually uh, reducing CO2 rather than talking about it. Well, because it was such an immediate, you know, right turn on this from, as you say, the People's Guarantee, Patrick Brown's idea about yeah. accepting carbon pricing, uh, to when obviously he left the scene, everybody that was running for the PC leadership was opposed to to carbon pricing at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, it wasn't just Doug Ford; it was Caroline Mulroney, it was Christine Elliott. Everybody seemed to all of a sudden say, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, we were never on side with this, uh, and now we're going to kill it right now." And th- and that seems to be the mindset we're hearing more and more. That's right. All when when those. Canada, I was very surprised uh, about it as well. Like all, all of them, uh, 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 with the exception of Patrick Brown, every PC, every PC uh, 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 leadership candidate was was against this. And so it's. I think everybody wrote them off as a bunch of retrogrades. But I think that they were just reading the mood of the voters a little bit better than everybody else. So politically, they've 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 caught a current. Uh, it's just if they do, uh, they they can do uh, uh, really uh, decisive things on carbon reductions. It's just a question of whether they actually do do these things. Well, and that's going to be the next part of our discussion, which we'll have to do another day. We're just about out of time now. It's always a pleasure, Steve. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. Steve Applin, of course, publisher of Emission Track, which uh, monitors CO2 and carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, and you got to wonder about the long-term future of, of carbon pricing and cap-and-trade. Uh, with the mood that seems to be spreading across the country and just what kind of an election issue this is going to be next year for the feds. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the other policy decisions that seems to be overturned was a piece of legislation uh, that was drafted uh, called the Investigations Unit Act. Now, this is in response to a number of public hearings that were held, one of them here in Hamilton, in fact, uh, some months ago, and uh, trying to address some concerns by the public about policing and about the, the methodology that's used for police investigations. Uh, the Ford government now says that uh, this policy that was enacted, called the Investigation Unit Act, quote-unquote, hurts policing efforts. So they've, uh, they've not canceled it yet. They've just put it on hold, they say, to try to reassess the situation. Well, where does that leave police service boards? who obviously were just gearing up to try to, to implement these things, and now it looks as if maybe they won't have to. Or what? Are the, I, we don't know at, at this stage. It's sort of in limbo. Well, here in Hamilton, uh, Lloyd Ferguson, of course, is the chair of the Hamilton Police Services Board. He's the uh, counselor for Ward 12 out in Ancaster. He joins us to, uh, to talk about the implications. Lloyd, thanks so much for jumping in. Appreciate the time today. You're welcome, Bill. Were you surprised by this announcement? No. I think that uh, we all expected that... Uh, when a new government is formed, they're going to step back and uh, slow things down until they get their head around it and then come forward with amendments to it, cancel it, or enact it. And 
just for your, <laughs> excuse me, listener's purpose, this isn't Bill 175. There was an announcement made by the previous government that uh, with Bill 175, which would, amongst other things, deal with the whole issue of suspension without pay on an egregious er- issues, plus a whole omnibus or a slew of other issues. Yeah. Uh, the one that they, in fact, has postponed or deferred or canceled is the one dealing with the Special Investigation Unit. And I know there was a lot of pushback from the police associations on this. Uh, they wanted to give the SIU the power to put $25,000 fines against constables, and which had the, the association, as you would expect, uh, very concerned. So the only impact on us that, uh, that jumps out at, on the page at me is that our auxiliary officers, our special constables, will still no longer be subject to investigation by the SIU. And, uh, you know, auxiliary are, are, are people that come in and volunteer to do police work. They're in uniform. And our special constables are those in, in the courts and those at McMaster University and in our custody area. So they will continue now to not be subject to investigation by the SIU. So it's 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 not a big deal to us to have this deferred. Um, uh, we would like to see the bigger bill come in, uh, the whole issue for suspension without pay. We have officers that have committed very serious crimes, and that they would be suspended without pay until the matter has been resolved. And if, in fact, the officer is found to not have uh, violated the Police Services Act or not convicted of a criminal activity, then their pay would be fully reinstated, backdated to the day it was suspended. To to encourage. Um, both the uh, the crown, but more importantly the officer, to get this adjudicated as quick as they can. And you saw the one with Craig Krakowski that went on for years. Yeah. And uh, so we've been we uh, the Ontario Police Services Board has been lobbying for a long time to get that one done. As has the Ontario Police Chiefs Association. In fact, Glenn DeCare, our former chief, wrote the white paper on it. Yeah. And and so uh, the whole thing is on hold. But I don't think we need to be surprised by any of this because. Um, they're, they're going to review all the pending legislation. And by the way, Bill 75 was not proclaimed. The only part that was proclaimed is the SIU powers. All right, so where does that leave you? I mean, and this is a political reality, of course, Lloyd, is that every time there's a change of government, it's it's time to really, you know, let's just, it's like an etch-a-sketch. You just say, okay, we're starting all over again. I mean, because you can go back to them and say, look, at this government did this. We never really did like this, and we want to talk about rescinding this. I mean, is is there going to be pressure now from police services boards to go back and relook at all of the legislation that was being drafted last year? I think you're going to see the Ontario Association of Police Services Boards, including ours, support of the Bill 175 initiatives. Um, the, the whole SIU power thing is not something that our board engaged in. It was the other amendments of the Police Services Act that we were trying to follow. And and this whole issue of carding, it's it's rearing its ugly head again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw last weekend that the chief of Peel says that crime is up significantly, and she blames it straight on carding. Uh, the, the personal elimination of it uh, from the Justice Tullock recommendations that the um, government put in place. I saw Toronto Police saying the same thing, that... Uh, the street checks was a valuable tool to them, and, and, and now it's not available to them. Is that why there's a huge spike in gun violence in Toronto? We saw it in Hamilton, and, and I, I pointed these statistics out to Justice Tollock when I had my private meeting with them in the winter, uh, where in 2017 uh, our street checks were three, also named Carding. So we went from 4,500, or just over 4,500, five years ago, 
down to three in 2017, but our shootings went from seven to 41. And I tried to draw a correlation between the two. Do the bad guys feel okay carrying guns again? And, uh, you know, it, being a good judge the way he is, he, he says, there's no definitive proof that there's a correlation. But now I, you start to see other major police service boards, particularly those in the Big 12, are starting to say the same thing. So I suspect even that will be up for review because uh, the new premier has been very vocal about his concerns about the amount of violence now happening in Toronto. Well, as you mentioned, not just Toronto. I mean, we're starting to see a spike here in Hamilton. Uh, and you and I have talked about that in the past, and there have been some incidents as, as late as this past weekend where that's happened. So do you see that whole issue of carding, street checks, whatever terminology you want to use, do you see that being reopened now with this government and this attorney general? Well, with, with uh, you know a number of the big 12s standing up now to say, hey, we believe that there is an increase in violence in our, in our communities as a result of eliminating, it's virtually eliminated uh, carding or street checks. And, um, you know, the Ontario Association of Police Service Boards, of course, will be will be working with the government on that issue. But I think that'll have to be driven by the province. It'll have to be the new government that'll come forward with that. I mean, you've still got the scars from that debate. I mean, it got pretty messy. I mean, the sides were very, very polarized on this. And and we saw that here in this community. We also saw it in Toronto and Ottawa and other communities. Uh, but again, we have to remind people, I guess, of the political reality that this government, uh, the newly elected government, uh, is not beholden to any piece of legislation. They can change anything that they want uh, if there's the will to do that by the government. Uh, did you get any indication at all, Lloyd, at this early into this uh, this uh, agenda, this campaign, that they're willing to look at that whole act again? Uh, not yet. It's still early days. Um, I mean, the whole issue with the amendments to the SIU were to be in place because that, that part of it um, was enacted, but it was supposed to go in place on June 30th. And so that's the part that they've deferred. Uh, we'll, you know, they still got to find their offices and get their cell phones and get their email addresses all sorted out before they take the bigger issues on. Uh, and, and of course, we hope they consult with us. You know, we have a conservative MP, MPP now in uh, Hamilton and Donna Skelly, who's very familiar with this issue because she heard it at council. So, um, short answer: too early to tell yet. But uh, we're going to be watching and doing what we can to. Make sure that we have every tool in the toolbox to keep our streets safe. And, and listen, I understand, depending on what side of the issue you're on, if this whole idea of carting comes back up again, uh, it's it's really pushing us back because, I mean, it, it, there's going to, I don't know whether they want to do public hearings or they're just going to rescind it, uh, who knows, but you know there's going to be pressure from the police association, from the chiefs of police to have that discussion again. But the problem with that, as, as I see it anyway, Lloyd, is if they say, okay, we're going to hold that whole bill up. There's a, some parts of that bill that you'd like to see enacted right now, including the, the whole concept and the problem, as, as I think, is a proper characterization of, of paid suspensions. Right. Yeah, we would like You don't to want to throw that. the baby out with the bathwater. No, and, and because it wasn't proclaimed, they don't have to put it on hold. They can proclaim it if and when they want. And, uh, you know, they, but I, I hear the Premier regularly on the news saying that, you know, he wants more law and order, particularly in the Toronto area. And, of course, we're all concerned, and we saw that in the news, too, that these gangs are going to spill west, they're going to go, well, east and west of Toronto, into Scarborough and into Hamilton. And we have to be ready for that, and we have to give our police every possible tool we can to, to stay ahead of it. And, and that spike in shootings in 2017, that's, that's very unnerving, uh, how that's heading in the wrong direction. And, of course, Justice Tullock was, was retained by the previous government 
to do a review of that legislation is how it's working. And, you know, I've got to give him credit. He gave me about an hour and a half of time uh, with our vice chair to review this from top to bottom. And uh, to my knowledge, that report hasn't been issued yet. So once he issues that report, and depending where he goes with it, um, may impact how the government moves on it. What about, the, I want to go back, if I could, to the Special Investigations Unit Act that, uh, that they talked about. That's the one the government did uh, target when they talked about uh, putting a hold on this. Does that at all include uh, the, the, the timeliness? Because I know one of the concerns about, uh, about SIU investigations was always it takes so darn long, and that's, that's not fair to the officers involved, it's not fair to the families, the victims, etc. cetera. Uh, I was under the impression that that was included there. And, and uh, now, of course, there was a, a great public concern about that and even the, in the methodology in which those investigations were undertaken. Uh, is that all on hold now, too? To the best of my knowledge, everything's on hold. Well, that's not very productive, and that's not really uh, I, I, what we were looking for here. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't assuage any of the concerns that were raised over the last two years. No, and, and of course, they have taken too long. You know, they're taking well over a year or more. You know, in the case of the uh, the, the complaint from um, Councillor Green on police officer, uh, that went to OIPRD, which is now part of the SIU, is uh, with this amendment, which is now on hold. I mean, that took two years from start to finish. That's terrible to have uh, these sort of issues outstanding in the community for that long. And it causes a lot of issues, and, and once again, was it making our streets less safe because officers were concerned that they could get charged for, in this case, as, as the um, hearing officer said, for doing his job. And um, so, you know, when there's a change of government, you essentially start over again, And uh, but that's part of democracy, and we got to work with that. And, and your job as, as the Police Services Board is to say, okay, that's the law, this is what we have to work, those are the parameters in which you have to, to, to perform, we get that. But now that there's an opportunity to revamp and revise and, and tweak some of these stuff, would you like to see both of these things under the microscope once again? Probably not. I think we've had a good, good full debate on all these issues, and uh, uh, you know, I'm sure that the government is hearing from the police associations uh, on this issue, and, and they, they have a right to be heard also. Uh, but I wouldn't. I don't think we need to start from scratch again. Is uh, is, is there going to be a united voice here from the chiefs of police and the police association? Are, are they like-minded about this? Pretty much, yes. The police association. I saw an email from them this morning where uh, they were disappointed it got uh, put off. In fact, the whole bill one seventy-five. Why hasn't it been enacted? Well, and, and I can't ask you to get inside the heads of, of you know the governments and the people who made this decision, but when I see a phrase like we're putting this on hold because we feel it hurts policing efforts, I I, I can't quite understand that rationalization. Well, I think that we hope hurts policing office uh, efforts is that the 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 is this twenty five thousand dollar fine that an officer can be fined uh, under an SIU investigation, and of course so. Once again, when, when there's a cloud over the police officers, they're going to be a little less reluctant, I would suspect, that they have to do their job. And I, yeah, I can't get inside their heads either, but I would expect they'll be a little bit more hesitant about dealing with issues if they're concerned about this. And so we, I'll go back to my opening comments. Uh, I think as chair of the Hamilton Police Services Board and the board itself, our main mandate is public safety and giving our officers, you know, within a reasonable cost. And, and so um, it's our job to make sure these officers get every tool in the toolbox they can and feel comfortable and that somebody's going to have their back when they do their job. And, and that's what I would like to see my role as, a, as chair of the board to do just that. 
Do you feel that $25,000 fine, the potential $25,000 fine, was an overreaction to public sentiment? Don't know. Clearly, the, uh, I, I'm not sure what initiated that, uh, but clearly the associations had trouble with it. Because I, I don't remember anybody coming forward and saying, this is what we should do, you should put that in the bill. That's, I don't know where the motivation or the, the idea for that even came from. I don't either. And um, it, it came during the review, and, and I don't believe it came from Justice Tollick, but it might, because he seemed to be the, the biggest advisor to the government on this issue of the uh, amendments to the Police Services Act, including the street checks. So I'm not sure where the $25,000 came from or some of the other issues that's giving our, our police association heartburn. Well, it sort of sounds, just uh, if you read between the lines here, that that whole that clause of the bill may never even see the light of day. Yeah, I would suspect that would happen, but I can't predict what the government will do. Uh, no, that's a fool's game, isn't it, to predict what any <laughs> government's going to do. Lloyd, thanks as always. Appreciate your time today. Anytime, Bill. Thanks. Lloyd Ferguson, chair of the Hamilton Police Services Board. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.